to be fully human, to be with others, to trust that line that goes into the darkness, into the unknown space, like that became how I thought of writing and living. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics. With me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the Storysmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In today's episode, we're really honoured to speak to the very brilliant Barnu Kapil. Barney's most recent book, How to Wash a Heart, won the T.S. Eliot Prize and was a poetry book society choice. She is the author of six full-length poetry collections, the recipient of a Wyndham Campbell Prize and a Chumley Award. For 20 years, she taught creative writing, performance art and contemplative practice at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. She's currently based in Cambridge as a Fellow of Churchill College. And she also teaches at the University of Vermont's Rubenstein School of Environment and Natural Resources as part of a practice-based PhD in transdisciplinary leadership and creativity for sustainability. In this episode, we talk about the recent UK publication of her book, Incubation, A Space for Monsters, with Prototype Publishing, and expand this discussion to a wider ranging chat about her work. Incubation, A Space for Monsters, is set in a shifting narrative environment where human bodies, characters and texts are never solely one thing. This fragmentary, diaristic text journeys through in-between spaces, following protagonist Lalu, cyborg, girl, mother, child, migrant, traveller, on a road trip through American landscapes, genre styles and form. Incubation creates a radical space to allow us to consider what is monstrous? Welcome to Tender Buttons. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we were wondering if you would start with a reading from Incubation, A Space for Monsters. Yes. Um, I'll read um, a paragraph. What is a paragraph? Paragraphs are emotional, Gertrude Stein. Or was it syntax or was it font? So I'll read this thing that might be a paragraph which comes in the coda at the end of the book. And I can't remember the exact title. What's it called? Um, Notes on the Floor, Coda for the British Edition. This book is for all the monsters. This book is for anyone who did not discover until it was almost too late that they were beautiful in the eyes of strangers. This book is for anyone who came upon their origin story in a book of fairy tales in a public library. This book is for anyone who burns to write but does not. This book is for anyone whose idea of a good time resembles a vector but also a kite. Imagine the blue sky and the cut glass of the kite string glinting at dusk. You're on the rooftop. This is childhood. This book is for anyone who, in the middle of their childhood, had the sudden thought, I'm no longer a child. 
This book is for anyone who left their birthplace for reasons they could not control at the time or reverse. This book is for anyone who made home in the end out of what it was, a glimpse of the horizon four times a year. This book is for anyone for whom this horizon is dreamed or recollected, a hot green line embedded in the art they make, something a reader or observer would not notice or perceive unless, like the artist, they repeated their walk through the space in which the art was presented or made. So that comes from, as you uh, mentioned before the reading, from the coda of the British edition of Incubation. And I wondered if we could start by asking you what it was like to come back to a book, which was the US publication in 2006, I think. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like over a decade later, how, how it was to come back to that earlier text in this new publication and why it felt like the right time mm-hmm. to have that return. Mm-hmm. Well, um, this is something I was thinking about when I saw Claudia Rankine read from Plot in Cambridge um, a few weeks ago, which was a book um, that preceded Citizen and earlier works. Um, and this sort of like lag or belatedness to the new edition in another region or if the book is out of print as mine was you know what then Um, and I suppose you know you could think about that in different ways but for me um, I'm trying to remember the day yes there was a day I suppose in 2016 um, So in the US, that's when Donald Trump ascended to his um, glottal leaking throne. Um, And just before that, or just after that, I received, you know, the one remaining copy of incubation that existed in the world and just um, uh, understood that my book would be, had timed out, was timing out. So I remember that moment and it was a real sort of like interest, like in my heart, I thought maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe like a book doesn't have to be something so permanent. It's not like a crystal that can never be shattered. Um, It's not a crystal that's been extracted from the earth and burnished. Um, It's made of paper. Um, You know, what, what is it? What would it? What would it be to listen um, to this moment? And so I really considered allowing, you know, this particular project in the form that it was in to ebb off. Um, but really, in that moment, it was a decision related to like lots of people writing to me about, oh, we have found it on eBay for a hundred dollars help, or the PDF was circulating. Um, And I thought about that too, just putting it online somewhere, but I didn't want to administer um, or curate that imaginary site. Um, So it was really kind of people writing to me um, and wanting, um, no, you know, I I don't know, nothing more, nothing more than that to make it available to those um, readers who were most often also writers. But now it's been almost seven years since the moment that Kelsey Street Press accepted the project 
um, in the US. And the UK edition has brilliantly um, appeared um, just before that. Um, but on the day that it was published yesterday, I also received the US proofs. So I'm noticing like these intersecting arcs, like these moments um, of looking again. Um, and also to edit a book that you wrote long ago um, and not in a linear fashion to edit, to proof is a profoundly linear process. So I've never actually read my book um, as books perhaps are intended to be read from left to right in a very saturated um sort of uh, ultra-focused way. So it was a very um, sickening, interesting experience. Um, and it was very beautiful to do it with Jess um, at Prototype. Um, and just to be surprised, I think, by the care of like small press culture in the UK, which I'd never experienced before. Um, so a chance to remember a chance to forget, a chance to delete, a chance to abbreviate, a chance to bring the project of the monster or the cyborg um, to the present, um, to weigh a particular kind of immigrant memory against or with experiences unfolding in the present that weren't completely mine. So it's been eerie. Um, and uh, uncomfortable process and I you know in the time that it was originally attempted to be a book it oh my god it won a prize at one point I met a writer called Talia Field um, who teaches at Brown University in a cafe in Boulder Colorado this is 2000 or 1999 something really strange and far away um and a version of this book had won, she told me, because her friend was the judge. It had won the prose prize for the something New York Press Prize, something like this. But when the judge presented it to the publisher, they rejected her choice and said it was not fiction. They refused to publish it. She resigned. There was some sort of fuss, and they never again had a fiction category. So... There were all of these like early things to do with incubation that made me feel it's a particularly um, strange um, experience to attempt to be a published author of this particular book. It's been too long and there was a moment where I thought I should just lay it in the foam of a ragged sea. But here we are and I feel... I feel the cyclical and weirdly intersecting cycles of the US and the UK proof and publication happening on the same day. I'm ready to think about monsters with others and not just constantly uh, in my own mind or notebook making like notes about like Dracula and thinking about bats. Like that has to come to an end. That's how I feel about my book being published now. So, so much of incubation, as you mentioned, is kind of framed around this image of the monster or cyborg. Um, and you wrote, I'm going to quote you, the monster is that being who refuses to adapt to her circumstances. And then at another point, I said, what is a monster? 
you said anybody different. And I wondered if you could just explain what that image holds for you and why it felt central or important to the book. And again, sort of as you say that aloud, I remember standing on the porch of my neighbour in Colorado. I went around asking everyone I knew, like, what is a monster? And I think that was my neighbour, Annie, who's an acupuncturist, and I think that was her response. Strangely, like, in in the present um, and not then, was I can't quite travel through time to answer your question, but but now if I have to think about what is this kind of um, idea of a character as a mode of like non-reproductive productivity, this ambient yet inassimilable like dot, um, what's that fleck, what's that kind of trash idea about a human being, um, something that doesn't um, open up to newness but is regressive, that's almost disappeared. And for me, the answer comes in the present from the archive of Enoch Powell, which I've been reading through slowly over the last three years at Churchill College in Cambridge, where I'm based. And um, here is this kind of ancient idea or new idea, but it was an idea that governed my childhood and perhaps was the thing that made it um, absolutely impossible to to stay, or I couldn't figure out at that time how to pierce or interject unicorn-like, how to, how to become a part of like arts or literary culture. The closest I got was jumping off a train that was heading for Loughborough and running through the rain to make a honey Qureshi reading. I think it was the launch of the Buddha of Suburbia. And there weren't that many people. It was really raining. And he was sitting on a table in foils, stacks of his books and wearing his dungarees, staring at everyone. And that was like the closest I got to, you know, the life of a writer um, as a teenager or in my early 20s. So in the Enoch Powell archive, there it is. Um, it's not just, um, you know, the idea that immigration is something abhorrent that should be stopped or paused or rethought. No, there were arguments that in some ways kind of made it into institutional law, the idea of repatriation. Um, and so from a very early age, um, the atmosphere around me, the time, the time of Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. Um, it was like that. It's like you could be born in England, but never actually experience yourself as having been born as a British person or an English person. Um, and thus, perhaps you were never born. And I think that that was my project to kind of take that feeling um, what happens if coastal, that feeling in the form of a character begins to ambulate, circulate, go? Um, uh, what does it mean to uh, traverse um, or make contact with the crust or surface of another country um, without your own figuration fully fleshed out? Um, 
I don't know if that answer is too convoluted. I noticed that to speak to you like this, I have to. <laughs> um, my mind is here, but my mind is also remembering what it was to write this book there, the United States. Um, and I think uh, these are questions of citizenship, um, but also ethnicity bundled into a character that we'll call for now Lalu, which means ultra red. So something I suppose that isn't there completely, but also is highly pigmented, highly visible, highly saturated, reversing or perhaps propagating a kind of vigilance um, upon every arrival. I wondered in in incubation as well, the kind of framing of it is around so much, at least in the first half, around the idea of the road and hitchhiking. And mm-hmm. there's a description, I think it's someone who's blurbed on the back of the new edition of it as a post-colonial on the road. Mm-hmm. And I wondered how you felt about that description, because I guess like the hitchhiking of on the road and coming through from the white male privilege of Jack Kerouac is Mm. about freedom and the access to the road. Whereas Mm. the hitchhiking that takes place in incubation is constantly coming up against the violence Mm. and racism Mm -hmm. of the nation state in America. So I wondered about that description and how you felt around it being described as a post-colonial on the road. Well, that is um, a phrase by a writer called Douglas Martin um, in New York, uh, who was my colleague at Goddard College in Vermont, where we taught for some time. And actually just hearing his name, we used to make videos. Um, You can find them on YouTube, actually. Um, One is of Douglas climbing a tree as another writer, Darcy Steinke, uh, reads aloud from Frankenstein. Um, (laughs) Sounds amazing. um, Yeah, Douglas is a really amazing person. I noticed that in the beautiful marketing language or the kind of language that surrounds this book on the road is often um, invoked and I don't mind I don't think we can always control the framework of others or the language that feels possible for them Um, I should say that I taught for 20 years in a space called the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics so there was this kind of afferent beat vibe. Um, I remember moving into a apartment and the person who I'd rented it from, the day after we moved in, he knocked on the door, he came to look for his kid's toy and he came into the back room and he said, oh, you put your harmonium exactly where Allen Ginsberg used to store his harmonium when he used to keep it with me. This would be Stephen Taylor, who was Allen Ginsberg's collaborator. So this was kind of going on. I couldn't quite concentrate <laughs> on it because I was at that point a single mother. Rent, rent went up in Boulder, Colorado from, we got a letter through the mailbox. Your rent is going up from $800 a month to $1,900 a month. What? So this when led, was this, this was, this was a long time. This must've been around 2000, 2000 when I sort of began teaching there. And so Boulder, Colorado, which is sort of like a hippie, Morecambe Mindy, Jack Kerouac world, like there's a tree uh, where he once had a nap that's mentioned in on the road in Longmont. 
There's El Chapultepec under this old stadium where I used to go for um, like a $1 beer and listen to jazz and anybody could. Um, so these spaces where these kind of people had roamed and um, like, you know, feral piglets, like smoking, you know, Marlboro lights, like it was all there and available and it was shabby, but being priced out, I had to live in a ragged village to the north and commute, which, you know, cuts into the, you know, the vibe of living in this space. So it's sort of like in and out. Um, so for me, I don't know that it was a response or a primer in reverse, um, except that it was in the atmosphere. Uh, but actually, the reality is it's almost entirely and precisely with variations, the story of my own um, hitchhiking uh, from New York to Oregon uh, after my first year in the United States. So the stories of Fatty and Daddy and the story of Florence, Oregon, the story of the Roaring Sea. Um, many of the stories are autobiographical subsets of like that journey something that I really love about your writing on a sentence level is sort of how to me kind of like across your body of work it sort of feels like all of your sentences kind of hold multiple levels of meaning and they're often kind of grounded in a reality or a realism but then there's lots of kind of like symbolism and illusion and sometimes a surreal element to them and it sort of feels to me as you're reading, like the reader kind of learns how to read your books as they go along. It's almost like you're you're giving the reader this world and this language, mm. and the reader kind of steps inside. And as they're moving through the books, they kind of understand the journey that you're taking them on. Mm. And that that reads to me as something really powerful as a writer because it's like the reader has to speak your language and see things the way that you want them to see them. Mm. Um, and I wondered if that's something that you're thinking about or sort of what what are you thinking about with it, with approach to kind of language in that way? You know, listening to your, your beautiful question and without like a sense of who my readers have been, um, it's very different to have a reader now than... You know, at the time of writing that book, uh, I'd had my first book published, but a first book is sort of like a stone is thrown into a lake and it drops to the bottom of the lake, like nothing happens. Um, and then maybe it's sort of like nudged from the floor of that lake and kind of, you know, you know, someone finds that stone and turns it over and sees like a fleck of mica or something. And, um, it becomes like a possession or something interesting. Um, but actually, like, nothing, I was not in a literary, like, milieu. I was, at that time, I was earning a living as a massage therapist, part-time teaching in the Jack Kerouac school, single parent, four-year-old. It was sort of like a difficult time and a non-time and a void time. I sort of 
many of my contemporaries like had published. I was, you know, in my mid thirties at this point and had had these rejections. Um, uh, you know, maybe a couple of well-known writers had asked to see my work and then there was a persistent like um, message. This isn't a novel. This is not, these are not sentences. This isn't fiction. Um, so uh, now I just understand, you know, that time in a different way. Um, it's a time that returned me to figuration and what it would be to write the body through sensation, through intensities, through notes and dots. Maybe the thing that you're describing as symbolism is the thing that I would describe as um, saturations. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, but it was a notebook time um, that I was that I was in. So I can't say that I really had a relationship to either a readership or any sort of like uh, desire to be read in a certain way, like that this is a template or these are um, goggles. Um, but as you were like asking your question, what I saw very vividly in my mind is like, what would it be to kind of take away the sentence and to install the syntax, maybe in pencil. Um, and I suddenly think maybe I'd like to do that for incubation, like just to fill a space just with the semicolons or the spaces and to make a kind of score out of that. But really that's another way of saying, which is I think what you're saying to me is that the part of the sentence that holds my interest when I'm reading or when I'm thinking or when I'm writing um, are the parts of the sentence that can't be seen. Actually, they can't be written. They can only be felt. And for me, the syntax um, is the place where that emotional life or psychic life or um, other kind of life might reside. Like that's the part for me that adheres to the page. Um, you know, in, in doing the proofs for the prototype version of incubation, um, I noticed viscerally a missing comma um, and added it in. Um, so, yeah, that's, those are maybe some thoughts about sentences as analogues of, you know, what it is to to go, like to kind of move through the space, move through narrative space, but maybe differently to cross-genre writing or hybrid writing. I wanted to denote like the idea that it's not so easy always to move, you know, from one section or cross-genre, um, but in fact, how do you annotate the snags and the glitches and the reversals and all the places that are not accessible, um, that not even writing makes possible. Or just like the way that a semicolon, or when I look at a comma, when I'm, actually not when I'm writing, but when I'm rereading in this strange process of reproofing, rereading work that I never read, but only wrote, but now I have to read, is to think of the semicolon as facing 
you know, towards the beginning of a sentence. So as in music, you know, just these curvatures that like um, uh, tab you left. And is that resumption um, or is it erasure? Um, this is a philosophy of the sentence created for your podcast. But uh, I think I used to think in these ways and I haven't really had a chance to talk with anybody like this for a long time. So mm. thank you. So the idea of installation feels important. Um, grammar or syntax. And um, I suppose like um, instead of plot, saturation like mm. intensities mm. yeah i guess linked to that i had this is a two-pronged question i think see how see where i go with it but first of all linked to that there's it feels like if you're writing there's such an importance of like bringing back to the materiality the physical process of writing on the page so mm. i'm just thinking about the structure and the different components of um incubation so handwritten preface to reverse or notes to stop the car that like note taking and notebooks feel like a really important part of your mm. books but mm. I'm thinking of in schizophrene how it begins with uh the book that wasn't because it was thrown into the mm. snow and then there were the pages found and a process of building from the fragments there or in Bannon Banlio notebooks seem is a really important part of that and the body seems to be like brought back a lot into the words on the page within your work. Why is it important for you to to bring the actual material process of, of writing onto the page mm. okay. across your work? All right, across your work. That feels like an important word. Um, strangely, like right next to me, I could show you, but um, I'm going to try and show you, is the same massage table. I managed to bring it back. From, here we go. Oh, there it is. Can you see it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. wow. It's a bit heavy, so I'll put yeah. it down. Um, so that uh, was my massage table. So I trained um, as an orthopedic body worker, uh, soft tissue um, body work. And that, you know, is something like rolfing is, a, is in that area. But really it was just people of different kinds who would come to my studio or space and I would just work, you know, with them. And so something I became very interested in, you know, when it came to the body and the clients that I worked with was the, was the diagonal. So across the body, because that's how the fascia wraps around a body. So to release like this crystalline, matrix um, or chicken skin um, this kind of um, underlying layer that holds you know memory memory of gestures memory of recoil but also perhaps the memory of gestures that were once possible um, gestures never made so that kind of across the body um, always felt important um, and maybe holding two points and holding them long enough um, for those two places to begin to um, uh, pulse or um, orient to each other. So I don't know if that way of speaking about the body um, makes sense or is clear, but 
I realised that at the time of writing this particular book, I also had my bodywork practice. And so um, those ideas would have been, you know, very prominent. And also the language of the flesh, um, thinking about bones, thinking about lymph, thinking about flows that maybe you couldn't easily palpate, but you had to wait for. So I'm trying to remember, but I remember, I remember like wanting to think um, of the road in incubation as something like lymph, like a very subtle flow, or maybe, I don't remember thinking this, but it would make more sense to kind of visualize that as arterial. But actually I wanted like lymph or craniosacral, like to make it visible, not like not as a symbol or a construction that was always apparent, but to have like a line that kind of goes underneath the text and kind of surfaces. So the idea um, of hitchhiking maybe, or asphalt or tarmac or the car. Um, and that was very much like also thinking at that time about lines that you can follow uh, that then resurface in another part of the body. For example, if you're working with the right levator scapula, for example, you could follow that um, contraction, you know, diagonally across the body and end up, I don't know, um, this, in the left foot. So I, I think placing an idea about narrative next to an idea of the body came from, came from that time. And it would have been surrounded by images and posters and anatomical charts and also very happily bartering um, with um, many other practitioners. So learning about acupuncture as well. Um, mm. I was thinking of acupuncture because mm. and reflexology where the foot can yes. unlock the whole different parts of the body. Exactly, exactly. Um, does that help to answer that prong a little bit? Yeah, and it's led to my next bit of the prong. <laughs> so as you're talking about memory, I was thinking through the relationship in your work and again across your work between memory and the body and writing and your performance work. Mm. So for example, I've got here, there's a moment in incubation where it's moving into a childhood memory, which is described in incubation as... Um, a time before writing, childhood, mm. a time before writing. And there's a quote here, which is, I can say whatever I want in this memory. So there's something there around what writing allows one to do with memories. But then elsewhere, for example, in your notes for How to Wash Your Heart, mm. you talk about how the title came from the performance you did at the ICA. But in your end note, you write, in writing these new poems in How to Wash Your Heart, I diverged almost instantly from the memory of the performance. Mm. And so I wondered about that complicated dialogue between memory writing and performance in, in your work. Thank you. That's a really beautiful question. I think there, then, but also here at the ICA, but I was not here, but now I am here. Um, if I have to think about the turn to performance, which happened in the US, it was very much about like coming to the, coming to the limit of texture. 
So in writing about India or in my upbringing, um, West London, suburbs of London, um, there were moments when the line, you know, would break or I'd be writing. Not that I could not remember, but, you know, being back in England, although I'm not by any means in the kind of environment in which I grew up, but so much, all of the... All of the prompts to memory are available. Um, the Hawthorne Blossom, um, you know, every, everything is everything is here. The contrasts are here. The grey silver is here. The smells are here. Um, and yet in Colorado, which is in the western United States, um, you know, it's, a, it's high desert, it's arid, and there are animals... Um, that could tear open your flesh. There are jaguars, there are panthers, there are bears, there are rattlesnakes. Um, So performance in my garden or when I was teaching just became a way to um, think about a scene or a part of a scene and then to reverse it and then to kind of move it forward very slowly So at the time I was teaching um, a class called Memoir, Anti-Memoir, and thinking um, about memory and students were doing research into pathologies of memory or we were speaking in different ways and across disciplines about, um, you know, the ways in which we conserve or, um, you know, delete memory. Uh, So that was kind of also in the air at that time. But in particular, realizing that the parts of like my notebook writing that felt so unfinished always, precisely because I was not there, which is to say here, um, performance became a way to, um, to pause, to pause at that, at that particular moment. And then something in that reversing and then elaborate, elaborating also came from the body because the way in which I would work, if there was an area of the body that was contracted, my method was to kind of um, amplify the contraction. Um, And then from there, through rotation, through shaking, through um, uh, supported gestures, proprioception, like to kind of um, make a space for new gestures. So performance and memory, which is to say there, now I don't know, am I a diasporic writer? I'm not sure at this moment. But there, as a diasporic presence, performance allowed me to substitute, um, let's say, the Ponderosa Forest in the Rocky Mountains for the Sal Forest of West Bengal, or in particular, trying to remember the night of the riot, um, the Uxbridge Road, Southall, Middlesex. I used to make like um, these kind of small environments with like aluminium foil, uh, with daffodils, um, or kind of drawings of daffodils, actually. And so that's like kind of staging a memory. But also when I began to inhabit those environments, um, 
you know, making it slow enough that I could remember uh, and making time after performances to take notes. I didn't know about this field, performances research, until I think I came back to the UK and that it is like a field, but maybe that's what I was doing. And I never intended to become, let's say, a performance artist, but I did find it very helpful, you know, if I could then take those decompressions, those notebook decompressions, and bring them um, into the thing that we're going to call the work. I'm trying to remember if that was my process for incubation. I feel like I'm describing the process of Bannon Bonlieu or schizophrenia or even how to wash a heart, um, but not incubation. Incubation, perhaps, was something else. <laughs> hmm. I'm just thinking there's a section that I really loved um, in the Calder of incubation, which since since speaking to you about language and you kind of talking about the the saturations or kind of like the textural elements of it I think it makes sense but I love the the part where you say I think you're describing a um a correspondence you had with the cover artist oh yeah the UK edition and um you said that they sent you a or an image of, or they described a sad house with pink neck curtains. Yes. In an ideal yes. world, my crudo would be set in that house. Yes. Lulu on a mattress reading the latest Daniel Steele. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> a medicated lozenge dissolving beneath her orange tongue. Mm. And I, I found that so arresting and I felt like I I knew exactly what you meant. <laughs> like it, it, it evoked such a strong feeling that mm. really corresponded with the book. And I just wondered, kind of, what what were you thinking about then? And does it feel really important to you to kind of capture these textures of place and tone mm. in your work? Oh. Well, thank you. That was my real dream to write um, the sequel, you know, in Beatrice, Nebraska, which is where the book ends. And my friend... Friends Andrea Spain and David Banash, they, they would come to Colorado and go back to their universities in Illinois and Mississippi. Um, and they would pass through Beatrice, Nebraska on I-80, I think it is, and they would always take a photo. This happens twice a year that I'll get texted a photo. So this is Stuart Middleton, who's now in Wales. And I this was like the start of becoming British again, or a British writer, which was an invitation from the ICA connected to um, Stuart's installation at the ICA where he lowered the ceiling to become the floor just before their renovation. And in fact, this is so strange. I think he called the whole thing on the road or there was some like Kerouac situation, but I was like, who is this? And he wrote to me or Rosalie Dubal, the curator, wrote to me and said what is this um and it involved an invitation to hurtle through the air and like be here for like three days and then go back which now I think I would reconsider and have begun to reconsider these glamorous you know tangents that are available to you once you become um you know like this um i.e a menopausal Asian witch, like deluxe. Um, <laughs> but back then it was so exciting in a way to have like a cup of tea with my cousin Matu or hang out with my oldest friend and have these 
glimpses that I could then kind of take back with me, but it was really exhausting in other ways. But that's how I met Stuart. And I was in Colorado to pack up and to think about what to do with the hundreds and thousands of notebooks that I'd accumulated. And suddenly I get a little text. Hi, Banu, thinking about you. I'm in Nebraska. I don't think he realized I was in Colorado. He was at an artist residency somewhere in Nebraska. Next thing you know, he drives to come and see me for two days. And we have an amazing adventure with elk and, you know, extreme mountains. And on the way back, he stops um, in Beatrice unexpectedly. And I have the photo. I'll send it to you afterwards if I still have it. And for me, it was complete, like this kind of vision, this longing, lifelong to become a novelist, um, to write fiction, to um, imagine something that I never felt I could like actually live, like all of these strange ideas um, that began when my father came home with like dramatic paper bag from Dylan's bookstore and just I was sitting on the ground in front of the television and he just dropped this book from a great height and it was like a thud on the carpet. I think we had a very threadbare carpet um, in those days and it was, you know, Midnight's Children, Salman Rushdie. He was like, read this and sort of stomped off in his duffel coat to get his tea and curry and chapati, whatever. Um, he'd come home from work. So... All of this longing and this kind of build up and this desire to write Lalu into this other kind of life, um, to take care of this body, which over these long years, precisely because this swiftly written book, you know, wasn't quite as ephemeral or fleeting as I'd sort of always dreamed writing could be. Um, like a pamphlet, like a story, but instead had acquired this mythology of not existing, of being deleted, of being rewritten, of being written rapidly, of reappearing, of bifurcating, um, of being rejected, of being loved, you know, all of these kind of responses that like um, felt um you know, beautiful and strange to think about, but maybe to think about the book in this way, maybe it diverts the energy that other people would use to actually write the thing that we're going to call the novel. Um, so the cover is very meaningful to me because it connects me to um, uh, this artist and the completion of something, of an idea, in a form that I could never have expected. It came as a photograph texted to me at 2 a.m. It did not come in the form of the novella that I think I could write for you. Send me your address. I will put myself in a little cubby and I would write you your own private novella. I'm so pleased that you respond to the lozenge and Danielle Steele vibe. Um, I can see it in my mind. One thing I wanted to ask you, which kind of reflects is on the point you made around performance and be and this idea of performing in the US being a way to bridge certain connections that you had 
across the world, for example, like between being in a space in the US and the forests of Bengal. And the forests was something I wanted to ask you about in mm. your work. Mm. Because having read a lot of your work, they seem to be places that take on very different iterations with each project. So for example, the forest passage in Incubation is a very dark and haunting one imbued with mm. loss and a sense of violence. But then there's a moment in How to Wash a Heart where the forest becomes kind of a place of pleasure. I've got the the passage here. I want to take up in the arms of the person I love and drink coffee with them on a balcony that opens to a forest where the moss glows Glows green green. in the pouring rain. Yeah, which which feels like such a different forest to the forest we encounter in incubation. And then obviously in Humanimal, the forest is 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 like imbued through everything um, with many complex iterations. So I wondered about the role of forests in your work and their different articulations I guess. Thank you. I think sometimes when people ask a writer like how did you become a writer or why do you write like I'm pretty sure that I know the answer to that question and in fact it's I'm not used to speaking about it so much but it's the book that I'm 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 hoping to write as soon as I have incubation in my hands which I have not yet seen. It might be, it might be outside in a box. Um, but I, I think as soon as I can hold it in my hands, I'll feel that I can, um, you know, begin to write into this story. Um, and the story is simply of a night when I was maybe eight and a half or just before my ninth birthday. I began to menstruate when I was nine before my 10th birthday so it was closer to being nine and it was a strange period where after the kind of ban riot world so I'm just trying to think of how old I was well very suddenly for many reasons we were suddenly in India my mother my sister and I um, my sister was a baby. My mother was sort of like folded into this beautiful world of loving aunts and cousins and parents and grandparents. And nobody kind of really noticed me. Um, I ran wild. And my education was put in the hands of my grandfather, who was um, a very accomplished musician, chess player, uh, mathematician. And of course, you know, his idea was let's just go for a, a walk and we would go to the Russian bookstore in Chandigarh and he'd be, he just played chess with the owner, the Russian owner, and I would just be left. This was in another era. The story of the forest is the story of going on a walk with my grandfather and we left um, in the late afternoon. We stopped at someone's house. Um, he commented on the roses in their garden. They invited him in. He saw the chess set. They played chess. They gave us tea. We kept walking. Uh, there were stands of bamboo. There were um, uh, a community harvesting the bamboo. We kept walking. The forest. So this would be um, the hills, the Shivalik hills. We kept walking and suddenly there was an enormous puddle in front of us and we understood that if we went along the edges, we would go right into the forest, into the jungle. But 
lions, tigers, you know, the formidable um, beings. So the other choice was go straight through. So we walked straight through. The next day, or the day after, we discovered that in that puddle, it was in the national news headlines, there was a snake in that puddle that later that night um, would um, consume, eat, kill, you know, another person making that journey. Um, Anyway, nothing happened to us. We didn't know. We kept going. And by that time, night fell. It was too dark. And we had to stay the night in the forest. And we stayed with yak herders. Um, so a, some tribal people. We slept on the floor by the fire. And, you know, that, that night, you know, just walking until it was impossible to return. That is the night I'm trying to write about now. And when you said forest, like that, I think that is the forest night that imprinted me, like some idea that to be fully human, to be with others, to trust that line that goes into the darkness, into the unknown space, like that became how I thought of writing and living and I keep trying to write it and it's so interesting to me that you notice that I myself hadn't realized that jungle forest I think is in everything I write but I hope I hope I can write it now as well in incubation there's kind of this recurring symbol of sort of abortion pregnancy um, and you write often of a, a body that's giving birth to itself which I think is a really powerful image kind of in in lots of different contexts and I guess so much of the book in lots of different ways through like the act of writing through migration through it's through the road the journey of the road it seemed very much about the the decision or the necessity to make your own life I think outside of these structures of sort of like nation family patriarchy um and I I wondered if you could talk about that symbol a little bit of a body giving birth to itself um thank you I will say like that my faint kind of maybe embarrassment to not to be published in the time in which I wrote the books um, until now, until How to Wash a Heart, you know, magnificent splendor, write a book, send it to England, book is published, arrive in England, everything, you know, that is a very unusual experience. But before that, it would be write, take notes, maybe 10 years pass, 11 years pass. So that belatedness um, always circulated in my own body as just a kind of a bit of discomfort or being not having moved on, but never being in the same time as the writing. Um, but when you ask that question, I think you know, of course, of like what is happening right now in the United States and, um, you know, abortion rights um, and just everything related. And also my anxiety at that time around contraception, around pregnancy, um, blood loss. And I had, I only knew this when I was giving birth and the midwife said, it's time to push now. I gave birth at home due to fear of hospitals. Um, it's very lovely, <coughs> very 
perfectly peaceful. And I was very surprised that the contractions were over and now you have to push the baby out of your body. Because at that moment, I realized that my contractions during birth were less painful than my periods had been all my life since the age of about 11 when they became excruciatingly painful. Um, right now, I'm not in the part of my life where, you know, the elevator of blood descends with regularity. Um, there's no red staircase, um, nothing. Um, and I find such relief um, almost constantly in little shivers when I think about how painful it was to menstruate. So I think um, about the time in which I wrote Incubation and I know that I was experiencing or had experienced um, so much discomfort um, and also was in um, still in the time when to write was to leave England forever. And it's harder to talk about why I left England. Um, in a way, in the middle of the podcast, it makes me not want to weep, but it does make me feel... Um, it doesn't make me feel sad. Um, I'm not sure it, it produces a strong emotion. If I have to think about why it was um, I left and why it was I could not stay. Those are stories that would be more difficult to tell in this setting. Um, but you're absolutely right to say that it was patriarchy that I fled. But saying those words, um, I'm reminded of a visit of Claudia Rankine to a class I was teaching in Laramie, Wyoming as a visiting poet. And one of the students asked, um, hey, Claudia, I'm thinking of leaving this MFA. What do you think about that? Do you think I should leave this MFA? Um, and this was in the context of a conversation at that time uh, around race and creative writing and the classroom and MFA culture. And Claudia Rankine just looked at him and said, there's no leaving the room. That's it. And actually, late in life, uh, that is what I have also discovered. Because, of course, I am in England, and so are you. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme. <laughs> <laughs>